Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're talking MLS playoffs, a thing that everyone loves universally and no one has any issues with. Joe Lowry, you said before we started recording that you think this format is perfect, and I thank you for that. <laughs> no, that was actually Goss who said that, so uh, just to course, set the course. record straight. Mm-hmm. I, I've really enjoyed the playoffs so far. I think they've been awesome. Goals falling out of everybody's pockets along the way. These games have been good. They've had good energy. I have I've really, really enjoyed the beginning of this postseason. There we go. So Joe's on board. Joining us is a man who agrees that a play in best of three international break single elimination format is the ideal way to watch soccer. It's David Goss. Hello, David. As a New York Jew who was raised on sports talk radio, the highest form of love is hate. So in my mind, you're right. that Everyone loves the format. There we go. And uh, view behind the curtain, we've got Joe wearing a, a, a gray sweatshirt, which feels appropriate for the way some people are approaching the playoffs. And then we've got Goss in a Continental Tires shirt, ever on brand, sir. Also, ever can on you brand. see that I have a goatee right now? I shaved it for a costume on Saturday night, and I keep forgetting <laughs> I have it. And every time I look in the mirror, I go, who's that creep? <laughs> Uh, Joe, Joe leaned all the way in to suggest that he, too, is struggling to see this goatee. What is the costume for, Mr. Goss? It was a murder mystery party, and I was assigned to be a specific WNYC NPR host. Not like generic NPR host. I was assigned Brian Lair specifically. Shout out to the legend. Shout out to the God. That is the most New York City costume yeah. party shenanigan I can ever imagine. Oh, my word. It was amazing. It was a murder mystery party about the rat czar and rats. Um, and I was in character, brought a microphone, did a bunch of interviews, put together a really good episode. So if you can donate at the top of the hour, we have a matching sponsor <laughs> at 15%. We'll have a tote bag in the bag for you, in the mail for you as well. Please support your local NPR. Joe, you heard Gasse Rats are, right? That yeah, wasn't I just did. me who yeah, heard no, that? I heard it. Okay. I understood it as much as I knew what that's about. Yeah. Do you know that New York was only rated the third rattiest city in America? Chicago and L.A. are worse. Suck it, Chicago. <laughs> Suck it, L.A. I'm going to be honest. That's unfathomable to me. That that yeah. cannot be true. That's what the thing said. So you got to trust the thing that <laughs> the I read thing, on the internet. The thing on the internet. Wow, we are off to a flying start where we're only the third rattiest city is uh, is high praise for New York. Thank you for that, Mr. Goss. We are going to talk about uh, New York later on, or I guess I should say New Jersey. Uh, but right now, we're going to start off with the Philadelphia Union with a three to one win over the New England Revolution. Actually, before we do that. We should maybe continue the conversation we were having a little bit before we started recording about this format. We've seen it play out a little bit more. We've had the play-in games. We've had the first of the best of two, best of three uh, playoff format. How are we feeling about this one? Do we like what we're seeing so far? It's been 
somewhat contentious, and I think that's putting it lightly. Joe, go yeah, ahead. A lot of folks out there, I think, have had a lot of problems with the playoff format. I think a lot of that stems from how it came about, right? This is Apple wanting more inventory ahead of making a long-term deal with Major League Soccer, wanting more games that truly do matter in terms of postseason inventory. And I think that rubs a lot of people the, long, the, the wrong way, right? Because it feels like these games have just been shoehorned into what already feels like a, a season with four other things shoehorned into it, with League's Cup now being added in the summer. Like, there's just a lot of, of different things to keep track of when it comes to Major League Soccer. And I'm sympathetic to all that. It's, it's probably not an ideal origin story for this new format. That being said, this has been so much fun. Like, I don't think it's perfect. The scheduling is difficult. The fact that there's going to be a giant international break smack dab in the middle of your postseason is always a problem for Major League Soccer and, and probably will be for quite some time. That is a big issue. And you toss in the fact that it's more games for players, teams with shallow rosters. There are valid complaints coming from inside the league. But as somebody who's not inside the league and who doesn't have skin in the game for any particular team or player or any of that stuff, there have been tons of goals Tons of fun games. Teams seem energized by this format. They seem to care about it. I've not felt like there's been a game that doesn't matter. Yeah, when teams take early leads, it's been a bit of a problem for other teams coming back. But newsflash, that's kind of just how soccer works. So I've enjoyed the fact that we've been getting a ton of goals. I also like, this is me as an American sports fan, Goss is talking about his deep inner uh, personality traits. For me, I kind of like the Americanization of this playoffs, which is already kind of an American thing. I like that. There are series. I like that the teams, by the third game of whatever series go to go to three games, they're going to hate each other. Like, if you think Nashville and Orlando are, are not going to hate each other by the end of this, or, or maybe they already do, like, you're sorely mistaken. So, I, I, I've i been very surprised at how much I like this. I thought these were going to be cagey games. I thought they were going to be very low scoring because teams, especially the away lower seeds, were going to sit back and absorb and just try to play for penalties. We haven't seen a penalty kick shootout yet in the actual playoff field after the play-in games. So, I, I, again, I'm very surprised, but I am pleasantly surprised by this format so far. I agree with everything Joe said. Um, I've really enjoyed the first round so far outside of RSL. And I think that a lot of teams have played some good soccer. I think this is, to me, closer to soccer than a knockout tournament normally is. And it feels even closer than an aggregate is in that you are playing to your true fundamentals of what you play throughout the regular season. And even in a game finishing 1-0 – in Orlando versus Nashville, I think we can all agree Nashville opened up and went for it more than they would in an aggregate series, where conceding the second goal is worse than scoring the equalizer. And for a team in Nashville that likes to sit back and play deeper in their half, they went out and went for it. And I think we saw that a bit from RSL, even though I knocked them already, and I will continue to over the course of this episode, and some of the other teams <laughs> that we saw. I thought the Red Bulls, after they went down, they went for it, and I thought they played pretty well. So it feels closer, I think, to what we sh should expect to see. And there's really no room for quarter but in a safe way of it's not that you can't make mistakes, but we are in elimination games now in every single series. And we will be from here on out. If you know the team ties it up 1-1, we're going to an elimination knockout game three. So I think it's been fun. I, I think it's been energetic. I can understand frustration from some people I think the largest part of frustration from a lot of people is like consistency from year to year and like settling into a format and sort of being able to understand what their team's going to face and and what it looks like and I, I can say as someone who tries to analyze this league like yeah it's really hard I don't know what a three-game playoff series is I don't know how teams handle it and that's different from single no knockout which was different than aggregate 
but I remember, I believe it was two years ago, um, NYCFC was the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, and they were off for 21 days, I believe it was, from decision day till their first round playoff game with an international break and then a bye. So there, is, there isn't a perfect format out there, um, but I'm open to this sort of being an interesting one. And I would say with the international break, this is almost like a mini season. So you had decision day, you eliminated half the teams. Then you have this mini playoff style. And then out of the international break, you are getting the old playoff format. Single elimination from there on out to get to MLS Cup. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, Gus, the way you put it there, I'm open to this being, maybe you said interesting. Honestly, forgot what you ended that with. But I'm open to this playoff format being a really, really good one. I don't know that I, I don't know that it's going to be. And there are issues. Again, fatigue is a problem. The timing of the international break. We haven't talked about this yet, but the scheduling of some of these individual games. Why is there a, a gap today on Tuesday, October 31st as we're recording? And before we get Columbus Atlanta to finish out the first games and all these series, why was Philly New England the first game of the first round and they're not the first game of the next round? They have to wait like 10 days. Some of those things make absolutely no sense. So there are these weird things, but those aren't necessarily tied to the format, right? Those are strange scheduling quirks along with the international break that MLS has to deal with because the United States is a giant country with teams all over the place and they it's very difficult for them to play games in the same way as most of the rest of the world or at least the big leagues over in Europe with more temperate climates. So again, I, I think there is a lot to like here. I think there are a lot of reasons to sort of nitpick and, and think that this isn't perfect, but on the whole, I am, I'm open. I'm also open to changing my mind and, and maybe this doesn't play out like we, we think it will, but I'm open to this being something that is is a good one to go back to for years to come. Yeah, Joe, I, I agree. Uh, Goss, I agree as well. I just think, like, to your point, there is always going to be little things that can be nitpicked. But when you're letting in as many teams as you are, the goal is to have a bunch of playoff games. And so I think having best two out of three accomplishes that. And I think there are certain ones that I watched that made me want more. It was one of those things where you get to the 85th minute and you're sort of hoping somebody equalizes. So you get a little bit more. You you did get games that were that engaging. And I feel like having another game to follow with those games and I believe it was him or it was Joe who was rooting for teams to hate each other. Uh, I do think that will be. Yes, 100%. It will build it will build that intensity, will build the atmosphere. Maybe it won't lead to the prettiest, most like aesthetically pleasing soccer. But at the same time, I'm not sure that's what playoff soccer is about. So let me just add in. I think what we've seen so far and not an exact science because we've only seen a few games, but I think we're going to get more four zeros than one zeros Mm -hmm. of. There's more value to open up and try and tie, try and get back into a game than there is to hold on to the 1-0 deficit. And I think in general, most of us would say we'd prefer that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I think the average person would say they'd rather see an open game than a closed one. Now, I like tension and I love one team pouring on pressure and the other team fighting it off. But that's me and I'm a nerd and I live <laughs> in my own space. I don't think the average person would say that where like you come out of a 5-2 LAFC Vancouver game. And I think that sells more to new fans, to new trolls, to anyone you're trying to get to watch the product. Wait, you're a nerd? You who went to a costume party based on public radio? I had no idea. I could never have guessed these things. Uh, You're not a nerd to me. And if you are, we're all nerds together, my friend. Uh, I think the second one is the reality. That's probably the reality. (laughs) Um, And then I would add, I kind of like the international break in the middle of playoffs, as strange as that may be. I like that we're not rushing to get the playoffs done, and then we have an international break, and then there's this gap. I like that we get some games, we get this break, 
uh, then we we get sort of a refresher on why we like the U.S. and then we're back into playoff soccer after that. So overall, I got no beef with the format thus far. Uh, I feel like we've discussed plenty of like consternation and concern about the league in the preceding weeks. So maybe we should instead just talk about the playoffs themselves. Let's start with Philadelphia, New England. Uh, having said that there's plenty of games still to play, there's plenty of drama still to be had. Joe, are the Revs done? Certainly seems that way, and not necessarily because of the result going into Philadelphia losing this game 3-1. to one. That's not an unexpected result or really an unexpected scoreline for this game. I think we, we talked about Philly being the pretty clear favorites in this series, despite this being the 4-5 in the Eastern Conference. But New England, they're already without Georgie Petrovich after moving him midseason, which did a, a very, very large number on their playoff hopes. But then they lose Carlos Hill in the first half of this game. He comes off with an injury. Still not a lot of clarity as we record on Tuesday about how severe that injury is, how long he'll be out for. I would be surprised if he starts in the second uh, game of this series, which really puts New England in a hole. Now they're without the two best players that they had on their squad to begin the, the season. And that is going to be a big issue, especially for a team now in New England. It's going to have to do some some work to break through Philadelphia. Like they're going to have to figure out how to find chances because they need to win, right? They can't really afford to go out there and play for penalties and lose in a shootout on their home turf with Andre Blake and goal on the other side. So they're in a very, very difficult spot. I thought the union for, for their part played very well in this game. New England didn't pose the strongest test for them. They get three goals inside the first 37 minutes of this match. Some really lovely play, especially from the left side of Philadelphia's diamonds with Jack McGlynn orchestrating a lot of their possession play. And the player he was finding quite a bit in this game is Kai Wagner. And now there's a big question mark around Philly as well. Even though I think they're going to advance out of this series, Kai Wagner is uh, in in the midst of a investigation into him allegedly using a racial slur directed towards Bobby Wood towards the end of this playoff game. I mean, his status is, is very much up in the air at this point. And, and if that comes out to be true, that he said things that he absolutely should not have, then he should not be involved in this game and, and shouldn't be involved for the rest of the season. So you know, now there's big question marks around Philly as well, and that's a huge blow for them because we saw in this match how dangerous Kai Wagner can be. But again, the soccer stuff is is way less important here than the human stuff. Does either of you have much insight as to how they go about investigating it? Is it basically what what like did you hear? What are you alleging he said? Did you say it? And then asking teammates and coaches and like looking at replay, do they hire lip readers? What are we getting, Gus? Uh, the, the, I think the biggest thing is they're going to try and find some video, audio, mm -hmm. footage, proof of it. Mm -hmm. And what we have seen in the past, mainly with Taxi Fontas twice, is once that doesn't exist, they're in a tough spot. I, I think if I, if I recall correctly from the athletic piece that Pablo and Tom put out about this, um, the anonymous MLS source had said they are working with the Players Association and the Black Players for Change to build a process. I don't think that process totally exists um, in terms of like locked in, set in stone. And so it be kind of becomes a bit of a, a feeling out thing. And I think what we've seen over the last few years is like that doesn't really work. It drags on. No one knows what to do um, when you look at everything that happens off the field. Um, so I, I would be surprised if there was a clean or quick resolution to this. Um, and it, it's going to be a factor for sure. I think as Joe said, moving back to the soccer, probably not in this series. And I think with the new England revolution, there's a lot to talk about with them once their season is over. And 
it goes back to investigations and off-field stuff. Oh, have there been problems? Yeah, and cultural stuff. But but one of the things that I do find interesting about the way the team was set up was this is the club that signed Georgie Petrovich before they sold Matt Turner. And they came into this season knowing Georgie Petrovich wanted to leave. And their backup was Earl Edwards. They made no attempt to bring in a backup that they thought could start or bring in a starter to convince to be the next in the line. And then they brought in Vashlik, which was one of those signings, which was he was the only free agent that was available because you're after the window. And now he can't move is the reports we're getting. But like he's 38 or 35 or whatever it is. Like there's a reason he was a free agent. I think it's not that they signed the wrong guy then. It's that they didn't have a plan coming from a club where they've had plans. They brought in Dylan Barrero to replace Tejan Buchanan. Now that didn't work out perfectly, right? Then they brought in Sean Clay. But like they've literally done this at the goalkeeper position in the last two years. And so to not be prepared for this, that part seems really odd to me. Um, and I, I think, as Joe said, they don't have the firepower. And then you add on to that, structurally, they're not as strong as Philly. Now, the one thing you'd like to see is um, you'd love to see Veroni get the start in the next game, Gustavo Bo alongside him. You'd love to see them try and take advantage of Damian Lowe. That's the weakness for Philadelphia. Jakob Glesnes, a former defender of the year. Jack Elliott's been equally as good as him. Um, this is the first time they've never started together in their entire careers in Philly, but especially in a playoff game. And so that's the spot where I like Damian Lowe. I think he's he's a, a decent replacement when you talk about MLS backup center backs, but you're talking about backup center back. You're talking about two DP forwards and Sean Kalai. So they have to move him more. They have to try and pull him out and then get behind him a little bit more. They have to force him to defend around and in the box to draw fouls um, because he's capable of it. So I, I think that's the one spot that you look at a New England team, you look to try and take advantage and, if Philly's forced to make a change at left back, now you hope that Dewan Jones can win that battle as well. And if you're starting Veroni and Bo, you have two or three finishers that can be in the box when he gets to the end line for crosses. Joe, are you feeling pretty good about selecting Philly when we did our playoff draft? I, I am feeling good. I was feeling more good before all this Kai Wagner stuff has come out, and I'm, yeah. I'm glad it's come out. But that is a massive problem for them. And then Jakub Glesna is dealing with sports hernia injury. Jim Curtin said, you know, it's not impossible that he'll be back in the playoffs, but it's not likely to be a one week or a two week kind of thing. So the international break could be huge for him. Should the Indians survive in advance, the way this is set up, you don't try him now, right? Right. That's part of this format is you're sitting on a win. You've got home field advantage. Yeah. There's some some strategy here. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So those things crack the door open for new England in a way that, especially before the, the Wagner investigation started, and the end of this game in, in a way that I, I honestly don't think it would have been cracked open. The Revs start with a you 4-2-3-1 know, shape with Carles Hill as the 10 underneath Gustavo Bo and Noel Buck as their right-sided midfielder. He, he's not a wide midfielder. He's played there a bunch this year, but he, he's a central midfielder. Like That is where his his future is going to be. The Revs are are also dealing with their own injury problems. Brandon Bay has been out. Like This is a, a, ma- a matchup of two imperfect teams, but the Union were much less imperfect before you know, we've, we found out a bunch of the stuff after this game, I still would go with the Union here. I think they are the better team, even with some of those issues. But you know, it is, it's slightly murkier than it would have otherwise been. Uh, we've got several more games still to discuss. We're going to take a quick break. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. I have been waiting to come out of break because I wanted to ask Gus since he mentioned it. Gus, did you solve the murder? Were you yourself murdered in the murder mystery party? I how, wasn't how murdered and I did figure out who it was correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like super proud of myself. Did you stay in character as NPR broadcaster or did you go full on like like Poirot, uh, like, uh, Blanc, Benoit Blanc from Gla- uh, Knives no. Out and stuff? Did you I, solve it all? I stayed in character. Okay. And then I waited my time. I was one of four people who solved it. I solved it alongside these other people. But I was Love pretty that. proud of myself. Good job. Is it yeah. clue style? Was it like with a candlestick in the You can tell how much library? Taylor really wants to talk about the MLS yeah. playoffs right now. <laughs> um, right, I figured out what, how it was done and by who. Well done, sir. Well done, sir. It was uh, rat poison. Spoiler. Did you uh, also oh, figure out what oh, happened? The lighter <laughs> oh, God. I'm moving us on quickly. I apologize for taking us down this road. Joe, tell me about LAFC 5, uh, Vancouver 2. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Denny Bowanga, uh, pretty good, uh, it turns out. So I just wanted you all to know that I wanted to be the, the first one ab- yep. aboard that bandwagon. Uh, Denny Bowanga, quite good at the scoring of the goals and the playing of the soccer. And props to you, Taylor, for seeing through some of his finishing woes last year that we documented very well on the show and talking about how you know the underlying numbers were there. He's going to hit. He's going to be the Golden Boot winner this year. And you were you were spot on about all yeah. those things. You, you absolutely nailed all of that. This game was. <laughs> I think uh, there's mild MLS rage coming through from Joe. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, maybe uh, this, this game was on something. I don't know exactly what, but this game was awesome. I'm feeling very very good about my VSP. That in the Western Conference, LAFC Vancouver would have the most goals per game of any first round series. I'm still waiting on the Eastern Conference because I need Columbus Atlanta to be full of goals for me to really get through. But I mean, this game absolutely lived up to the billing in the West in a game where we had five goals in in another matchup that we'll get on to later. Uh, Guys, I don't know if you know this, but defending set pieces is an important part of soccer. 
just laying that groundwork now, five set piece goals in this game out of seven total goals. Five set piece goals in this game out of seven total goals. Four goals on set pieces scored by LAFC. One goal on a set piece scored by Vancouver. Vancouver coming into the postseason, and I wrote this for Backfield, they're the worst def- team defending set pieces in Major League Soccer. They allowed 14 goals from set pieces, according to Opta. That was four more than any other team in the Western Conference playoff field. And they go out there and allow four in this one game. You cannot win games. Forget it, playoffs, regular season, whatever. You cannot win anything if you're allowing this many high-quality chances from set pieces. Vancouver are going to be dead in the water if they cannot reverse that and find some way to improve that between now and their next game. LAFC, we're the better team here. They're not a perfect team. The Western Conference is a, a conference filled of imperfect teams, if we're being honest. But, you know, LAFC got the, the first goal in this matchup. Ryan Holling said scores off of a corner kick in the 18th minute. Vancouver fight back. It's a lovely bit of play from Andres Kubas, who is a match winner for Vancouver in midfield, finding Brian White, who goes down and, and scores in the 27th. It's 1-1, and Vancouver just kind of melt in from there. They get it back to 2-2. LAFC go out there and score more goals off set pieces. Bowanga continues to do his thing. I think this series is heavily tilted in LAFC's favor. I know Goss expects Vancouver to win. I just, I, I'm having a really hard time believing in this Vancouver team when they play a game filled with this many mistakes to open the postseason. It It is their one Achilles heel. It's their big one. And I wish I had read that backfield article so I didn't do my own research on the set piece defending coming into the playoffs. But we did previews at MLS uh, last week and I brought up the fact that... Um, Vancouver had given up one goal in their final three games of the regular season against Seattle, St. Louis, and LAFC, the top three teams. And in the last six matches of this season, they'd only given up two goals from uh, the run of play. But they were the worst defensive team on set pieces. Now, LAFC are one of the worst attacking teams on set pieces. And so it was which is going to bend, which is going to break. Clearly, it worked out for (laughs) Ryan Hollingshead and LAFC in that first game. Now, it's probably wrong of me to say that's fixable if they haven't been able to fix it for a full season. But in my head, when you watch this game and when you watch these matchups over the course of the year, Vancouver are on the same level as LAFC. Where some of these matchups we talked about New England, we're going to talk about. <laughs> I want to preface other- this by saying that Gus said, in my head, yeah. they're on the same level. I just yeah. want to make sure that that's clear. Cool. From cool, what cool. I watched and uh-huh. what I thought played out. And uh-huh. so. There are some series we're talking about where a team isn't on the same level and it's how can they sort of cover the cracks with paper mache. Is that the right term? I almost said paper machete. You're you're the detective. It's not paper machete. I think we can be sure of that. (laughs) Vancouver is not one of those, but this is a massive issue. And I think one of the problems when you play LAFC is like they're direct, they're high tempo. You're going to foul players. You're going to be backtracking when you defend. And you're going to foul players. You're going to give up corner kicks because that's safer than allowing, you know, LAFC to press you. And so they're always going to have those opportunities. And Joe is right in that Vancouver has no chance if they defend anywhere near like they defended again on set pieces. A lot of it feels like urgency, which is odd again for a team that's played with a ton of urgency over the course of the season of reacting to moments, marking your man, continuing the play. Um, and then a, a, some of it's mental. It felt like I believe it was on one of Hollingshead's goals that someone stayed on the line after the second ball had been recycled and kept everyone on side. Um, so I don't know that there's like personnel changes really that you're going to make. Um, one of the things that does stand out though, and going back and watching the last two months of goals that Vancouver had conceded is 
outside of one ball playing out of the back against, I believe it was DC that led to a goal. Takayoko hasn't been bad, but he hasn't been great. And I think you saw that on that potentially deflected free kick or deflected free kick of it was savable. And they brought this player in as a Japanese full international in his career, in his prime to be a match winner, not just a solid piece. And he hasn't been that over the last month and a half. So Sorry, Vancou- Taylor. I know it breaks your heart. Uh, it does. And I take it personally. Uh, if Vancouver were going to turn this around, Goss, w- what does game two look like from their perspective? Probably the same. I thought they played pretty direct. I thought they played with decent intensity up until conceding the goal. Now, the big one was Buanga in the open field. Um, where I, I don't know that Javane Brown is giving Richie Larea the type of support he needs. I think there's too much space between the right center back, the right wing back, and then after that, the middle center back with his Veselinovic. Everyone then approaches Buanga at full speed coming from a standing still position. So I think you need to be more connected and just more specific, which is like, if Olivero beats you, great. He's a talented young player. I think he's going to be a good player in this league. He's not a finisher today. And Carlos Vela isn't the same player he used to be. And I don't know that LAFC connected any passes in central midfield. Like you have to play the game as if Buanga is a single entity threat by himself and then worry about the rest of it later. And if you want Richie Lurea to be an attacking threat, that means Brown and Veselinovic or whoever plays over there. Cause because then Tristan Blackman swapped over to right center back has to be more focused on closing him down. Outside of that, I think Vancouver created the type of chances they would like to create. I think they created enough to win in a matchup against LAFC at home. So we had uh, Joe, I believe, taking Philly. We also had Joe taking LAFC. I feel like Joe is feeling pretty good about his predictions. Goss, you can get one back with uh, Houston versus RSL, a game that when you realized it was only the two of them playing on Monday night, you, I believe, cursed audibly before we started recording. Uh, So safe to say that you're both... Super excited about this one. Joe, can you hold your expectations, hold down your enthusiasm for the return lag of Houston RSL? Actually, I am excited. I've, I enjoyed all of these matchups so far. I don't have the same, you know, maybe disdain or, or lack of enthusiasm here. I, I don't know that this was the best played game of this round, but I think that some of the storylines here are fantastic. And I, I really enjoy watching the Dynamo play. I did one backfield plug already. I'll do one other one. We just had a feature drop this morning with, you know, conversations with Pat Onstead, Ben Olson, other folks inside the Dynamo organization trying to figure out how they've changed things, like how this organization has gone from 13th in the West last year up to fourth this year. Like what changed? How did they go out and do this beyond Hector Herrera deciding that he he cares? And that is included <laughs> in the piece. But there's there's more to it than that. I think there's some good insight there into their methodology and sort of the roster build. This Dynamo team has some very clear strengths. And we've been saying this for quite some time. Their center midfielders are absolutely fantastic. Like the top line in my notes in terms of takeaways from this game Houston central midfielders continue to be their path forward. Hector Herrera opens the scoring in this game with a lovely goal from sort of the left side of the box. A lot of the play for Houston in their sort of 3-2-5 possession shape is dictated by the central midfielders. It's Artur, it's Hector Herrera, it's Coco Carrasquilla. Those guys run the show for the Houston Dynamo. The problem for Houston, and the reason why RSL is still in this series, is because they don't have the attacking versatility to do more. You look at Nelson Quinones on the left side, extremely inconsistent, Then you look at Griffin Dorsey on the other side, inconsistent with a a pretty low ceiling, in my view, as a player, is good at a lot of things, is not good at some other things. Like, they're not getting reliable production from those players. And I mean Bassey, who's in the the left half space, sort of next to Corey Baird. 
those are, are functional players, but they're not focal points. Neither of them are focal points. Bassi scored you know, more goals than any other Dynamo player this year. A bunch of them are from penalty kicks, right? So we have to look at that through that filter. This Dynamo team has obvious quality, and they can break you down in the final third because the players all love to combine. You know, Bassi loves to combine. All the central midfielders I mentioned like to combine. Like, they can play through you. And they did have some success doing that against RSL. They were the better team and deserved to win this game at home. But it's it's not impossible with your RSL to say, hey, no, we didn't misplay this first leg, really. Our approach, our basic approach was correct. You know, Diego Luna has a, a lovely moment in this game. He gets the goal for RSL. He also gives up the ball on the top of the box for, for the second goal for the Dynamo. Like, if you tidy things up a little bit, if you're RSL, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You can force Houston to attack through the wings. You can really stack numbers centrally. You can rely on them being predictable and playing crosses into the box. And you can go out and get a couple of goals in this game and even this thing 1-1. I think this is one of the series that's still poised pretty tightly, even though I think Houston are still the favorites here. Joe, do you get the sense with Houston that there is a like an overarching plan there? Like I look at a team like Cincinnati and it feels like they made deliberate decisions to change their structure, to change their recruitment, to change the way they went about signing players and then the players they actually brought in and how they wanted to play. And it felt like there was a progression in things from the conversations you had uh, from that piece uh, for backfield. Do you get the sense that Houston have that same plan that even if this isn't their season, if, if the playoffs don't go overall supremely well, that they can then still come back next season even stronger. Yeah. So first of all, it was Phil West who wrote that piece. I, I didn't write it, but I did get a chance to, to read it and work on it uh, on the on the editing side. But I think there is absolutely a plan here. I, I don't think it's going to happen. It hasn't happened as quickly as Cincinnati turned around. Although I guess the season wasn't all that different from from Cincy's first year under Noonan and Albright last year. Like I, I think there is a real plan. You look at their recent investment into analytics in terms of going to to Robbie and, and Sarah Rudd and Source Football, bringing them in as consultants, I think is, has helped change some perspectives inside the club, bringing in some other staff members who are very, very well respected within the data and tactics community, in both you know here and abroad. They've made those changes. And you have you know quotes in this piece talking about how they recognize, like, we were okay with mediocrity. Like, we had accepted being mediocre. Like, we can't do that anymore. Like, we can't afford to do that anymore. We don't want to be that club. I think there is a real idea here they talk about in that, that piece, like some of the methodology and how they do want to play. Hector Herrera comes out and says, you know, we don't really have a style earlier in the season. So there is some... There, there's some still lack of coordination. I think some more time is needed in terms of this club really finding itself. But I think there are some pretty clear ideas about what the Houston Dynamo want to be. And I, I do think we're seeing some of that along with this idea that I got to. It's not done yet. Like I've said, and I still believe, like set the piece aside, I think this Dynamo team is still at least two transfer windows away from being a, a legitimate MLS Cup or, or, or Supporter Shield contender, if we're even going to put them in that conversation. They've made a ton of progress, but there is more progress for them to make. And, and who knows? Maybe we'll see some of that in this series. So how do you feel like, how do either of you feel like game two goes after having watched uh, the first one with Houston winning two to one? Goss, any thoughts on what RSL can do to get back into this one? Or is it going to be Houston breezing through? I would say, I think Joe made some points about how RSL could try and slow Houston and the inconsistency of Houston, RSL had 27% possession and less than 0.5 XG in that game. If Chicho Arango's out, if everyone else who's been a part of their attack is unusable, we don't really understand what happened with Danny Wasofsky. He went from their leading goal scorer to unplayable. Anderson Julio is not capable of playing a full game, so your Brett's transition option 
can only be a bench option. Um, and, and I didn't think Severino showed up for the first game. I think obviously things will get better being at home, being at altitude, being probably in weather that's more comfortable for RSL than Houston. But to me, I thought this was the easiest series to pick and nothing from the first game proved that wrong. I would actually say it was a bad in terms of Houston having inconsistency in finishing, it was a bad game for Houston, and they still won. I would be shocked if RSL can finish at a higher rate and create more chances or even close finishing at a higher rate to be equal over two games now, one being again in Houston, from what we saw in that first game. So, yeah, it's soccer. RSL's going to try hard because we've seen that in the past. Um, but they they don't have starting center backs, and it looked like Bodie Hidalgo came off hurt in the last game. So their right back who's filling in as center back won't be available for the next game. Um, there's a lot of missing pieces in this. And for all the things you can talk about with Houston and, and where they need to go, they won a U.S. Open Cup in a high leverage moment. And I think you look at a group that's been there already and has confidence in themselves. And I think a connectivity that RSL doesn't have. And I would be shocked if this series came back to Houston. I, this is the one that I think along with Philly finishes after two games. Let me ask you this then. Uh, if you had to pick who gets a, a, a third game, who forces a, a third game, is it RSL or is it uh, Red Bulls who lost three nil to Cincinnati? A scoreline that would have us believe that Cincinnati have this one easily. They've got it. No problem. Gossett feels like maybe you aren't fully in line with that thinking. Yeah, no, I thought Red Bulls were competitive. Um, there was obviously the huge mistake on the header back from, Andres Reyes, was Cornell comes off his line, which leads to Lucho Acosta's um, long goal, which well taken by an elite player. And I think Arthur had a chance in the Houston game to seal it on a similar chance. And I don't know, that's like the coolest way to close a game off is by chipping at midfield. Um, but outside of that, I, I didn't feel, I thought you had two special goals from Barial. I didn't feel that Red Bulls were opened up by FC Cincinnati consistently. And so I look at a series there where I think Red Bulls looked somewhat equal and created some good chances throughout the game better than I think they've created through stretches of the end of the regular season. Now the finishers aren't there. The finishers are not going to suddenly arrive, but they did score five goals at Red Bull arena less than a week ago in a playoff game. They did. It happened. You can't deny that it happened. So I think for (laughs) Red Bulls, like, With RSL, you're coming back to the drawing board and being like, can we play better than who we are? I think for Red Bulls, it's can we play who we are in this matchup? And then you're probably at 0-0 in the 75th minute. And then do you have enough at home to get over the line? But I thought of all the ways that game could have gone for Red Bulls, it was not the worst case scenario. Yeah, I don't think... It happened according to plan, right? Cincinnati getting the win at home in this first game of the series is not a surprise. It doesn't really change the calculus for the Red Bulls all that much. In terms of the flow of this game and and sort of where it puts the Red Bulls after the first game of the series, Goss, I, I agree with you. Like, they didn't concede a bunch of really obvious chances in the general flow of the game. They didn't create a lot of clear-cut chances either, but they weren't played off the field by Cincinnati for the majority of these 90 minutes but they were played off the field in three moments, right? Or, or at least in a couple of moments in this game. Some incredible goals from FC Cincinnati, like Barreal's first goal comes off of some lovely play. He's not going to be in the league much longer. Acosta's second goal, or first goal in the second goal for Cincinnati, 35th minute, Red Bulls throwing on the right side. John Tolkien ends up shooting from outside the box. His shot is blocked, and that sort of starts this vicious 
chaos cycle for for the Red Bulls. Since he started to counter, the Red Bulls try to play back to, to the goalkeeper, who then comes out of his box, Cornell, to deal with this situation, and he clears it right to Acosta, who then scores from just inside midfield into an open net. And so it's a great goal from Acosta, but it, it's not a, a moment that's well dealt with from the New York Red Bulls. That's a problem. And then Barrial scores a banger that you probably don't count on him to score very often to close this one out and make it 3-0. So I don't think, again, you set a couple of those moments aside, and those moments define games, to be clear. But I don't think that those are, are regular New York Red Bulls mistakes. You know, Maybe we saw them more this year than most, but I do believe that this group can tighten those things up. I still think Cincinnati have the edge here. Like, that has not changed. I think basically everybody picks Cincinnati here. But the Red Bulls are, are not down and out. If you sort of tighten up a couple of those little moments, and we know they can, we've seen it before, then, yeah, they, they still got a shot, just like I think RSL still have at least a little bit of a shot. Something to note, Sean Nealis came off at halftime. I still haven't seen any report about it. The assumption is the game was kind of done. I, I think he's sitting on yellow cards. This shows how much I know right now. Um, but he is massive to what they do. And if they were to lose him, I actually do think they'd be in trouble in terms of Cincinnati's ability to pull them apart. The other is Alvio Barrial is probably the most dangerous threat outside of Lucho Acosta. And I don't know that Kyle Duncan's even an MLS level starter. I don't think Dylan Nealis is either. I don't think there's a solution there, but I think you were exposed in a way that you could have anticipated you'd be exposed going into the game. And I'm curious what the Red Bulls do to adjust that. I also thought starting Drew Yearwood in this game was a mistake. And I don't know how much was short layoff after a midweek wildcard game to pull Daniel Edelman from that spot. I thought Peter Stroud was better in the second half than Yearwood was in the first half. But I, I think there's a couple adjustments the Red Bulls will make one they won't make is they won't not start Tom Barlow and Elias Manuel. The two have no connection. Don't play together. They will start they won't every single game. not start yeah. them. Got it. Okay, cool. They will start those yeah. two. And you think that's bad? It hasn't worked in any way yet. Um, and they are locked into it. So um, that's what you get. <laughs> An optimistic point to end on from that game. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back to round it out with a few more games still to be discussed. Back soon. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Joe, we're going to St. Louis versus Sporting Kansas City. A result that I'm going to say you sort of saw coming here. So credit to you, my friend. Maybe you didn't have it as four to one. Maybe you didn't have it as uh, shots flying in from outside the box and SKC looking fully dominant. But you did, I think, in our preview, talk about how you felt like, uh, first of all, I think you had it as a foregone conclusion they were getting past San Jose, which they did. But then it felt like you were you were leaning pretty hard into them getting past St. Louis. And now here we are. Yeah, I'll take some credit, but I got to leave most of it on the side of the road. I was too much of a coward in my actual bracket. To put, uh, to put SKC through in this matchup, I did pick St. Louis to make it on, which Shame. is now very much feeling like the wrong decision given that SKC get the win in this first leg. They'll play the second leg at home, at their home stadium. That's huge. Like This is a massive, massive result for Sporting Kansas City, but it's one that was always sort of on the table. St. Louis have played so many games where the margins are so tight, and they've been bailed out by Roman Berkey, who's been fantastic. Like They've had a lot of things go their way this season, this is one of the only times where something doesn't go their way. They weren't in fantastic form coming into the postseason. Sporting Kansas City very much were. They're healthy now. Like this, this game, for me, the result was not a huge surprise. Now, I will say, the way that this game was lost for St. Louis was a big surprise. And if you're Bradley Cornell, I don't think this is how you thought you would go down in your first playoff game ever as a club. Defensively, St. Louis really struggled. Like they, they struggled to win second balls. They struggled to clear the box out of their own third, or clear the ball out of their own third, excuse me. Like Sporting Kansas City, definitely a bit fortunate in terms of the finishing here. They won't finish at this rate, you know, probably at all in the postseason from this point forward. But you add in some set piece goals, one for each team, that, that puts a, a little bit of a strange filter on this game. And St. Louis's inability to win the very things that have kept them churning throughout the regular season, which is dominating every scrap that they create, because that's what they want to do as a club. When you take that ability away from them, or it's missing on a night, and Tim Parker and Roman Berkey both talked about this after the game, the execution wasn't there. Everybody knows what St. Louis is going to do tactically. So you can't afford then to be anything less than excellent when it comes to your execution. And I think everybody who watched this game, everybody who played in this game, even from a St. Louis perspective, would go out and say, we weren't good enough. Like they did not execute on their principles in this game. And that might be the end of their season because of it. Joe, in your opinion, was that like, I know you can't know and I know you don't love speculating on these things. I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Do you feel like that was the layoff between the end of the regular season 
and this playoff game was that just not being up for it on the evening. What would you say was the issue for St. Louis, a team that, as you said, has been very good in the way they want to play and being very dominant, being very aggressive to have them not be so is a bit of a head scratcher for me. Yeah, the, the cadence feels normal. So I don't think there's any excuse in terms of, you know, it's it's been a, about a week since decision day that feels right on. Like, I, I don't think that's the issue here at all. I, I'm of the belief that St. Louis have been overperforming throughout this season, and they've had a lot of fortunate bounces go their way. That being said, they have put together a lot of strong performances. They have done a lot of good work creating scraps, winning those battles, pushing the ball forward into transition. Like, they've done that fairly well throughout this season. So I think it's a mixture of, like finally just the ball bouncing towards their opponent's direction and supporting Kansas City taking full advantage of that and also them just not executing at a high level. There could be a bajillion different mental or physical factors behind that. But for me, it's a mixture of those two things that are really, really bad time. Joe, are you watching Goss's camera change into like darkness with just light on his face? Is this villain Goss? Is that what's happening here, David? What's going on? I'm pe- getting ready for my masterclass video. <laughs> it's, it's very dramatic lighting for you. Uh, Goss, Joe said like everybody knows how, how, uh, how St. Louis wants to play about how they're like what they're going to do. How can you nullify what they're going to do? How did Sporting Kansas City get their result? So what's fascinating about this game the one that was already played between St. Louis and SKC is we've had four months of conversation about underlying numbers versus actual numbers with St. Louis and recession or regression to the numbers and whether or not they've overperformed. And then SKC came in and completely overperformed their numbers, right? SKC scored three goals from outside the box. They're the first team in MLS to do that this year. Their XG was less than one when they were up three, one, And so I guess it's to hit bangers from 30 yards out would be my answer to you. And, and that's what I think is fascinating about this matchup is like, was the four one where St. Louis beat SKC on September 30th without really over outperforming them, the real game, or was it this one where SKC didn't really outperform and won four one. Now to Joe's point though, SKC won more duels. In this game, they won more tackles, not only over St. Louis, but then more than what they did in the previous game. So I think one of the things Kansas City did well at was they actually upped the tempo of the game. And they uh, we talked a little bit about actions, I think, last week and having less actions. This game had more actions than the September 30th matchup. And I think in the end, as Joe talked about, whether that gives you more opportunity for the ball to fall for Kansas City, or it allows some of Kansas City's more talented players like Gotti Kinda and Alan Polito and Daniel Shallowy to be able to create more often and do things outside of the norm more often because they have more ability to do it. Credit to Logan and Dembe as well. Jake Davis, I could watch him serve balls in every different style and direction for four hours. If he was down to just hang out and do that, he's awesome. Um, Maybe that's what caused this. Maybe Logan and Dembe scored the first goal of his career and a nice one from outside the box. And maybe that's the best goal of Gotti Kinda's career and it doesn't happen again. I will say in terms of the series for SKC to get through a game without using Johnny Russell, now getting him a week more of rest, being able to use Eric Tommy off the bench in sort of low leverage situation. That's I think going to make them even stronger next game, but it, it, I don't know what to take away completely from all of this. I think the one thing a lot of people fell on after the game and before the game and during it, which I don't totally disagree with is 
having a true second forward next to Zhao Klaus because one of SKC's weaknesses is their center backs and their ability to defend in transition. You took away the ability for Klaus and a partner to attack on their own or already be high up the field when you turn it over. And it felt like it took St. Louis too long to get into the attack and create threat, which allowed KC to put numbers behind the ball. So what would you like to see them do uh, in the second game? It would be Sam Adenarin or Joe Akini to start alongside um, alongside Klaus, probably in place of Stroud, maybe in place of Vasilev. I didn't hate the idea of playing Lovin a little bit deeper to get him on the ball more often, but you could move him higher up the field in place of Aziel Jackson um, to get him closer to the box. But otherwise, I think you're going to sort of play similar. There has to be a moment where you look at the tape and say, yeah, if Kyrie Shelton chests the ball down 45 yards from goal and Kinda hits, you know, a, a bouncing volley into the corner, like that's going to happen. And I think for St. Louis, you don't want to over panic. Even though you're in an elimination game on the road, you don't want to overreact to what happened. You still want to stick to who you are. Um, but there is huge question marks because I talked about it last week. This is a team that hasn't been in this situation before. And there is an aggression level, an intensity level in the playoffs that isn't in the regular season. And I didn't know how St. Louis would adjust. And I think in what I said of more actions, losing more duels like Joe talked about, losing more 50-50s, they did not adjust to that individual intensity that happens in high leverage moments. So Joe, uh, Goss there talking about what uh, St. Louis could do for Sporting Kansas City. Is it a matter of if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Would you like to see them roll out the same 11 or any changes you want to see them make? I mean, I'm, I'm generally in favor of Johnny Russell being in the team over Kyrie Shelton. So I, I think that is something that you have to consider. I don't think Shelton played poorly in this game, but I mean, we know that the difference in those two players. I don't think Saint, I don't think Sporting Kansas City, excuse me, need to, to reinvent the wheel here. They're in a very good spot coming into their home game. I would expect the same shape. Peter Vermees toyed a little bit with his defensive shape in this game. It's a lot of 4-3-3 usually from him. We saw a 4-3-3 press that then shifted into a 4-4-2 block. It's not like we've never seen that before. But, you know, maybe maybe you tweak a couple things there. Maybe you ride with the same stuff. I think generally speaking, as long as Sporting Kansas City are composed on the ball, as long as they take care of their possession and they continue to play with intensity, they're going to have a very, very good shot here. Because I think on quality, you look at these players that are going to be on the field, like they have the talent to win this game. They already showed it in the first leg of this series. There's a very, very good chance that they're going to come out and show it again with that little extra boost of being at home. So, Joe, you didn't uh, end up predicting Sporting Kansas City, even if you felt like there was a good chance they could get through in your official bracket. No dice there. Did you have Orlando or Nashville in your official bracket? Uh, I think I had Orlando in my official bracket. I think mm, the overall, I agree up, with but... Goss. I agree with Goss. Like, this is a really, really difficult one to call. And David, I don't know how you feel. I had Nashville. Excuse me. I had Nashville in my bracket. I just pulled it up. Shame. I think this one is very, very difficult to call. And, and Goss, I don't know how you feel. I, I think pretty much nothing changed after this first leg. Like, it's playing out how we expected it would, which is to say it is really, really tight and still anybody's game. That's exactly how I feel. The one thing I walk away with is Sam Serridge might not be the guy. And that's like the big Nashville hole. Who's going to score goals? Who's going to help Hani? Hani hasn't been himself, but you still need someone else to step up. If Serge puts away the two chances he was he had opportunity on, because it wasn't just the one that he missed on the cross from Schaffelberg. There was another chance where he got played in and he tried to bacule it back for Hani, where he was eight yards from goal with a decent angle. Um, and then Teal Bunbury misses a, 
I think a sitter is tough, but like, well, it was a header from the top of the six wide open on a set piece. Um, if Nashville finishes those chances, they're in this game. They go to penalty kicks, whatever. I don't know that they will. So that's where we still sit, which in Joe's point is where we sat a week ago looking at this series from the outside. I thought there was some good moments from Orlando where they were able to play into Duncan McGuire and then have him play back into a, a Torres or Angulo sort of breaking inside and create a little bit of chaos. But in general, I thought Nashville kept most of the game in front of them. Joe, you all are talking about how this one's like really well balanced on a knife's edge. I'm going to be honest. I don't have a ton else to say about this one. Uh, any additional thoughts on Orlando's 1-0 win over Nashville? A couple of things. So first of all, had some bangers in this uh, first round so far. The only game that hasn't happened as a recording in the in the first leg of all these series. Also, are we calling them legs? I feel like that's not right because you only have two legs. Like you shouldn't call it a leg. But guys, I don't. Game one. Should we game just say one, game baby. one? All right, game one. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be a changed man from this point forward. We've talked about all the game ones. See, it's still a little bit awkward, except for Columbus Atlanta because for some reason that game is tomorrow. Nobody really understands why, but. There have been some bangers in game ones. Lucho Acosta had some nice goals. Hector Herrera had a nice goal. Uh, excuse me. Lucho Acosta and Alvaro Barrial together had some nice goals. But Wonga, like, you can run through the list. This one from Cartagena in Orlando City's midfield. It comes out of basically nothing in this game. But it is an absolute thunderbolt going for the top right corner of Joe Willis's goal. Wilder Cartagena gets on the ball. Nashville give him way too much space. And this is where Nashville do get dinged. Sean Davis can't figure out if it's supposed to be him stepping forward or he thinks Walker Zimmerman should step forward and Zimmerman thinks it should be Davis. I think it should be Davis. I don't know why Zimmerman would step forward all that way. Either way, when that happens, you're still not expecting that ball to get buried into the top right corner in the way that it does off of the strike from Cartagena. If you haven't seen this goal, look it up. Like There's pretty much nothing but bangers in this first round so far. It's a fantastic strike. And for Orlando... This is massive because my whole thing on Orlando coming into the playoffs was if Duncan McGuire stays hot, Orlando City can make a run. If he does not stay hot, they will not. And in this game, he does not have a, a very big impact on proceedings. Yeah, he gets a couple of shots, but they're not like crazy dangerous. Orlando themselves didn't create a ton of you know really obvious chances here. McGuire didn't have a massive impact. But you know what? Orlando City, Orlando City still took care of business. They still get the win. That is massive for them because I, I still... I'm not terribly optimistic in their hopes if Maguire is not having a major impact. But this game is sort of the other side where if you get hot at the right time, yes, it's not single elimination, but the sample size is still very small. You don't have to do a ton to go and progress through one round and then the next and the next and get hot. If Orlando City can stay hot in different ways, they might have a chance here. Nashville still got a good shot in the second game of this series, but Orlando City took care of business. And I'll be honest, they did it in a way, at least in terms of how they scored, that you know, I didn't expect and basically nobody expected that banger. For each of you, which team in the playoffs do you think has the best home atmosphere? Which team do you think genuinely does get like an advantage from playing at home? And conversely, which team do you think has the worst home atmosphere right now? Oof. There's a lot of there's gosh, there's a lot of good home atmospheres. Like you go you run through the list, and I think there's way more good than bad like Atlanta is very very good Columbus is good Seattle's good Orlando's very good Nashville's good both SKC and St. Louis are very good like that's only half the bracket I I'm having a hard time picking one best one yeah I don't really have a specific one that stands out I would assume and I could be wrong but Dallas coming home after losing the way they did no Velasco all the injuries I would assume maybe that one will be one that's poor in terms of support, 
Um, but otherwise, yeah, I agree with Joe that I don't know that there are ones that stand out and that would be one that maybe will ding you. Um, New England I, as well is in the in the sort of the wrong end of this conversation. Right. Also. Yeah. Um, I will say to Joe's point about Orlando, uh, this was one of my fears about them, which is I thought they played pretty open and free throughout large stretches of the second half of the regular season. And Oscar Boy has teams have really never done that in big playoff games. I thought that was kind of the same, but it is a fantastic collection of individual talent. And like, you don't expect this goal from Wilder Cartagena, but he starts for the Peru national team. Araujo is one of the better young players in this league. Ivan Angulo has been in big games in his career. Facu Torres is on the Uruguayan national team. Like, You'd, I, I would say it's a list of players that I wouldn't think would score big goals, but all of them are capable of it because they are all, all high leverage player or high level players. Um, but I don't think this game did anything in changing my mind that I I don't think Orlando's an MLS Cup threat hmm. the way they're constructed. Well, you all have made me excited to watch that return leg. I think that's going to be really, really interesting to see how it plays out. Less so maybe the uh, Seattle-Dallas return leg for Dallas. Uh, Dallas going down. Both of them high on the could be could have a brawl really? um, meter, though. Well, well who, Who's going to get it kicked off then? Who, who's going to be the ones that Dallas and that? Seattle basically already did. Now yeah. you come out of the Alan Velasco injury. I wouldn't be shocked if it happened again. I don't know. I, I still haven't seen what happened to Paul Areola after Jordan Morris's goal. Um, but Jordan Morris scores in like the 75th, I think it was, the second goal to go up 2-0. And then Paul Ariola gets leveled after the goal. My, it, From as much as I can see, I think he turned to go back for kickoff and someone, maybe Yaimar, ran into him. But he was pissed. Then he got subbed off and was yelling at Nima Sagafi, the fourth official, for a little while about it. So I think there's already a ton there. And Orlando-Nashville just start there. Like... It's not we don't talk about it that much, but they've had some wild games over the last three years between the two of them. And Schlegel was working on it. Respect to Schlegel. He's always trying to get everyone. He's like, come on, guys, we're all going to get upset. And no one really went there. But I think now you go into an elimination game and Orlando goes on the road. And I won't be shocked if it's literally any of the 22 players that are on the field. Joe, how are you feeling about that one? Either who gets through in Seattle versus Dallas or the likelihood of a brawl? Yeah, what's uh, your MMA coverage? <laughs> yeah, my, my MMA coverage is weak, but I will say Seattle clearly have the advantage here. I, I think they were, I don't remember if they were my first pick. They were definitely an early pick in terms of the, you know, p- you pick a, a team and then the other person gets stuck with the they other were team your that number we did one on the pick. Patreon. Yeah, so I always felt like the gap between these two teams was wide. And I'll be honest, Dallas had opportunities early in this game. Like they started very, very yeah. well. Jesus Ferreira just could not put the ball in the back of the net, which feels like it is sort of going to be his curse, even though he scores a bunch of goals. He's still a very, very good player. He scores them, but just maybe not at the most ideal times. If you're an FC Dallas fan, a lot of frustration there. It's, it's again, this is the Jesus Ferreira paradox because I'll be honest, I kind of thought he was the best player on the field between the boxes and even his movement in the boxes. Actually, Paxton Pomichol can have that um, from a Dallas perspective, but like Ferrero was really, really sharp in everything but that last touch inside the box. Some challenges there for Dallas. I think if one of those finds the back of the net early on in this game, this obviously completely changes. But I, I think without that, Dallas are, are pretty much done. They lose Alan Velasco, who's not been an impact player for them, to be clear. But their bench options are even less inspiring. They bring on Liam Frazier 
and I, I, I that doesn't inspire anybody with confidence, right? Pomichael is very good. Someone on the sideline at one point, and I was like, "Who is this?" <laughs> don't worry, he lost it immediately after. All right, sounds. Wait, did he complete the Meg? I don't remember. He did. He right, with his back enough. to the player, he basically cruyffed through. I think Alex Roldan's legs turns nice. and then loses the ball. Put that one on the highlight reel. But like, yeah. da- it's it's hard to envision Dallas getting back into this. And and again, I feel like when I say that for a few of these series, that kind of points to some of the issues with this playoff format. And maybe that's valid, right? Maybe that's something we're going to see and think, man, these second games didn't have enough intensity. But it's now a must-win game for them. And when you have Jesus Ferreira, who is still a difference maker, you have Paxton Pomico blowing plays up in midfield, as he did in this game. The door is still open for Dallas. It's open for everybody but Seattle. And they grew into this game a little bit. They started fairly well, then they faded, and then they came back in. It's a soft penalty for, for Marco Farfan bringing down Roldan in the box. But it, I do think it is a penalty. Rusnak scores that in the 43rd minute. It's poor defending from Tafari and Abiaga. Not a, a super strong center back pairing for FC Dallas, a team that still has very real holes in their squad. Seattle just take care of business here, and it's pretty easy to see them uh, just sort of keeping on chugging here as the playoffs continue. So on the penalty, um, Nico Estevez, I think post game was complaining about where the throw in was taken because it's a quick throw that beats Marco Farfan over the top that Roldan dribbles into the box. I love a good throwing complaint. Trust me, I do it all the time in the games I play in. Never works, but <laughs> good on you, Nico Estevez, for going that one. And then Christina Uncle, obviously rules expert, has been on Twitter a bit, or X, whatever you want to call it, um, talking about the actual foul, which is there's a new rule coming in, or there is a new rule about players initiating the contact offensively losing the penalty kick now rather than it not mattering. And so there's a little bit of a question mark of like, does Roldan initiate the contact? Does he cause it? I think it's a soft penalty, but I think Roldan has a right to put his foot down where he does to protect the ball that he's in possession of. And Marco Farfan shouldn't have stepped in. In saying that, I don't think Seattle's going to score if they don't get that penalty. Like, they did not look dangerous. They did not look dangerous the last half of the season. Stefan Fry's playing phenomenal. Jackson Reagan and Yaimar are both Defender of the Year candidates. New who only helps them defensively, hurts them a bit offensively, but gets an assist in this game. They are nails on defense. The attack has been poor most of the season. It didn't look that much better in this game. It's enough to beat Dallas, but it didn't look like, oh, yeah, for Seattle, they just wake up in the playoffs. They did not wake up in this game, but they're the home team. They're more talented. Dallas had their injury concerns. I think at this point, worse than Velasco is how healthy is Bernard Camunga because he is, for them, a game breaker that Velasco has not been. And if you can get Camungo back, maybe you can start Jesus as the 10 and take off the responsibility of being the guy at the front that has to finish, but also let him do the things Joe talked about, which is be on the ball more often, open up the game, create. Maybe he gets back into his flow being in that spot. They haven't done it all season, but that option opens up if Camungo's healthy and you can slide on sub top or Camungo himself. There's a few options in there. Um, I, I think to Joe's point about the format is like, we say all this, but also like it's soccer, it's MLS. Home teams normally win. Get, most of these games are close. Most of these teams are fairly close. I would be surprised if most of the series don't end up in a third game. But I think there's also the chance that we come out of the third game saying, yeah, this team was clearly better uh, than the other one. And just quick shout out to my guy, Nkosi Tafari, who is a baller and 
in Joe's convo of best field players for Dallas was up there. <laughs> Joe, you don't agree? Well, I don't know. I'd have to go back and, and like quadruple rewatch that goal from Jordan Morris. It just is not a good look for Dallas's center back unit. Yeah, Morris is right in between Ibiaga and Tafare inside the box, just like pillows and pillows of space right around him. It's it's not great. I think you're. I think that's purposeful. I think you leave Jordan <laughs> at this point with mm, this goal scoring grade. I think the plan was to leave Jordan in that spot. Right. Right. Makes sense. I feel like Dallas are winning. I feel like we're getting game three in this one. We shall see. Uh, one game that has not yet happened, Columbus versus Atlanta. That one tonight because schedules. Tomorrow. Uh, excuse me, tomorrow. Uh, how are we feeling about that one, gentlemen? Uh, let, me, let me go back to my predictions here. I believe Joe took the crew with his second pick. Uh, so Joe was feeling optimistic about the crew. Uh, Goss, you were forced into picking Atlanta, but I feel like you're okay with that. No, I'm not. I think Atlanta <laughs> has no chance. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, was I, don't try, think, I was trying to find some positivity, but no, none will be. Honestly, had. I would say based off the first set of games we've seen, I feel more confident in Columbus. My theory coming into this huh. was that teams that play a bit more expansive are going to fit better into this format because you have more opportunity to get back in to be yourself. And I think we saw that over the first game, first round game. No. First game ones of the first round. See, see it's not so easy, guys. Yeah, no, not I, so easy. When you did your thing, I was like, all right, Joe, be less dramatic about it. Um, <laughs> I think that's what we saw over the course of the weekend. So I feel better about Columbus and coming out of that saying like, yeah, if this game plays out like those, Columbus wins easily at home. And yeah, Almada comes back and he's a match winner. And, you know, there's a lot of talent on the field for Atlanta, but this should be a fairly straightforward series for Columbus. All right. Well, if it is not, we will be back to talk about that and all of these other games. But for now, if it's uh, not, I'm not coming back. All right. Goss will be done. I like that. The lights are back on in your apartment though. So at the very least, the sun went away. (laughs) I only do natural lights, New York city. I'm basically in the mountains. You both could be recording from the same room using the same gray wall behind you, and I wouldn't know the difference. Uh, So maybe you are. Maybe you guys are actually roommates and no one's ever made it clear. Uh, Joe trying to high-five Goss. Goss not even looking at the screen anymore. (laughs) Joe Lowry, thank you for breaking down all of these many, many different playoff games with me today. Right back at you, Taylor. This was fun. And Goss, the same to you and your goatee. It's a podcast. I need to say something and not just do finger guns. (laughs) You did finger guns. Uh, I think that is a fitting end to the chaos of this episode. Now a salute from Goss on top of the finger guns. The goatee really just wreaking havoc on David Goss right now. Uh, Listeners, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with many more shows this week and more MLS still to come. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.